podcast where three average Joes discuss the significant topics in movie culture. My name is Justin Mancini. I am one of your co-hosts here. I'm also the co-host of the Podbrook Angels The Rush Hour podcast, which you can find on thepopbreak.com. And I'm very happy to welcome my other co-hosts. First, he is the podcast editor for thepopbreak.com, Alex Marcus. Hello, Alex. Hello, Justin. How are you today? I'm doing very well. It's uh, good to be back here with you and with our next co-host. Uh, he, of course, is one of my co-hosts on the Podwork Angels podcast. He is Noah France. Hello, Noah. Hello, hello, hello. I especially broke out of a CIA prison to be here today. Oh, I'm glad. I, well, I'm sure you got assistance. That's uh, I, I certainly hope you did. Yes. <laughs> Just so you have a little better protection because um, <laughs> you're now a fugitive from the law. Anyway, <laughs> we are now also going to be bringing you our special returning guest. He is the editor-in-chief of thepoprate.com, Bill Bodkin. Hello, Bill. Uh, good morning, gentlemen. Some people call me the editor-in-chief of thepoprate.com, the human charisma machine, the wayward son, the midnight son, the guy who finally finished all the Marvel movies, you know, years too late, and now is officially, as according to Alex a Marvel expert. So, you know, Alex hasn't gotten enough sleep recently if he's dubbing me that. <laughs> so thank you for having me back on. I'm really excited to talk about Point Break again. This is going to be a hell of an episode. <laughs> Can't wait. Can't yes. wait. That is that is the special. This is actually a stealth episode where we just discuss Point Break more because we didn't oh, have I thought, gonna, I thought you were going to say yeah. we're going to discuss the movie Stealth. And I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's a deep cut. Yeah, no, I think uh, I think that's been well discussed and doesn't need to be talked about or even mentioned ever again. Anyway, so stealth. Yeah, I didn't even know we were reviewing it. <laughs> I remember when they had Blu-ray players out. I was at Circuit City dating myself, obviously, and the movie they kept touting. They're like, look at this. Just look at it. Look at Blu-ray was stealth no idea why <laughs> no I, really? just, they, they were just like my god look at really this oh. fast <laughs> like look at it look how bad it is no no no. there's like it's beautiful. <laughs> and i'm like oh i don't think so <laughs> <laughs> well uh luckily we can put our our listeners at ease we will not be discussing stealth today but we will be discussing uh, a movie you may be more familiar with that's uh, kind of making uh, a real big box office push right now it is of course black panther wakanda forever the sequel yeah. to the 2018 film uh this time From a little uh, independent studio that people that it's up and coming i think i think people will will know about it eventually you know little, get little little no name no name independent filmmaker called kevin feige <laughs> <laughs> Yes, Pretty but of sure. course, this is helmed once again by Ryan Coogler, who, of course, did the first one, did Creed, did Fruitvale Station. Um, and uh, we will be getting into all of that. There's a lot to discuss. Uh, it's been very widely. I've seen it very widely discussed uh, amongst critics and debated, especially. But before we get into any of that, we're going to start with our full disclosure segment. This is where we discuss recent things we've been watching. They can be movies, they can be television, they can be just about anything. But we like to skew on the more recent side for that. So um, to I think I'll go to, to Alex, to you first. What has been good for you recently? Yeah, so I was happy to get the chance to watch a, a new movie this weekend in addition to uh, Wakanda Forever. Uh, and that's She Said, which is a new film by Maria Schrader, who many people might know as the creative uh, director behind the 
Netflix miniseries Unorthodox from a few years ago, uh, which got a lot of positive reviews. Also, I'm Your Man, uh, a little movie uh, that came out last year uh, that I didn't see. I did see, she said, uh, which is, of course, the telling of how uh, New York Times uh, investigative journalist Jody Cantor and Megan Toohey uh, broke the Weinstein scandal, the Harvey Weinstein scandal, where uh, they were able to get people to finally go on the record and talk about what a, a truly terrible uh, monster he has been for the last 30 years. Uh, it, this movie stars uh, Carrie Mulligan as Megan Toohey, Zoe Kazan as Jody Cantor. Uh, also, a lot of really great uh, supporting roles, including uh, Patricia Clarkson playing Rebecca Corbett, who is an editor at the Times, and uh, Andre Brower as uh, Dean uh, Banquet, who is kind of like running the New York Times at the time. Uh, really, really great kind of classic supporting roles by them, where they just kind of come in, they do exactly what they need to do, uh, to support the leads, and then they get the hell out of there. Uh, and it's it's really fun to watch, because I feel like in today's era, especially with kind of awards bait movies like this, a lot of the times you get you get these people competing for who can have the biggest emotional monologue, who can steal the scene the most. Uh, and these two actors do a really great job just not really caring about any of that and just servicing the material in a way that I really respected. Um Someone who also is in this movie and is great is Jennifer Illy, who plays Laura Madden, one of the victims of uh, of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, she gets a lot. She gets kind of the classic supporting Oscars uh, role in the sense that she is uh, diagnosed with a term with a, uh, a severe illness uh, and has to tell an emotional story. Uh, and uh, it's very boilerplate what you might expect but she really knocks it out of the park all the same uh and and you love to see that because i feel like jennifer really doesn't get enough uh good parts these days and I, i'm always happy to see her pop up so yeah this movie's great uh zoe's kazan and harry mulligan do a pretty serviceable job and as the leads um i never really felt as excited about them as i did about the supporting cast obviously since i've it's taken me this long to mention them, <laughs> but I do think that they do a good job and um, what they need to do. It's a very kind of dry movie. It's a very processy movie. It's a very like this is how we break the story in the mold of, of Spotlight. And uh, and I think that Maria Schrader does a really interesting job uh, working with her cinematographer to frame a lot of shots in ways that were unexpected to me. There's multiple times when the characters will just be, you'll hear them talking and it's a big crowd shot. You'll hear them talking and it takes a minute to orient where they even are in the frame. And they often are just kind of like in the corner, uh, not really making uh, much of a kind of presence in the room, but what they're doing is so important. And I think that that really speaks to kind of the ethos of what this film is doing. So yeah, I really like it. Also, Nicholas Bertel, who is uh, probably my favorite working composer is the it does the score for this movie and it's fantastic. It's subtle, it's understated, but it it hits the a punch when you need it to. Um, and I think it's uh you know it's very much in the vein of all the president's men as well, where you know it, it's about Harvey Weinstein in a sense, but it's really about the impact of of what his actions were on these people. And he is never depicted on screen. He is a voice on a phone a couple of times, and outside of that. Uh, he doesn't get the attention that uh, another version of the story might be tempted to give him. And I think that was the right call. So, yeah, it's it's a really, really good movie. It's better than I was expecting it to be. 
it's hard not to think about Spotlight when I'm watching it because uh, you know Spotlight is is so such a similar movie and just truly a classic in the way that this is kind of slightly below that. But I would definitely recommend people go out and watch it. Uh, it's especially if you like a processy movie about like how journalists do their jobs. Uh, it's very unshowy in that way, and I really respected it for that. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing this one. Um, and you spoke to some of the things that were maybe, even as I was excited, or, you know, maybe not excited, but definitely like wanted to see it. You spoke to some of the things that I was maybe a little bit concerned about just watching the trailer without having seen the film. So it sounds like they actually were able to, um, it's, it sounds like you're actually able to assuage some of those <laughs> concerns of mine. Um, yeah. But I'm really here for, uh, I've heard how great Jennifer Ely is in it. And uh I would love to see her get some Oscar attention just for anything because she's so great. Um, she had a really wonderful supporting turn in St. Maud, which I know I've uh, talked about on this podcast before. Um, a very different role for her in the best possible way. Very unexpected. Um, so I'm just glad that she's, uh, you know, doing really interesting work in other places, too. So I'm looking forward to seeing this one for sure. Yeah, she definitely does. And also, I will say, Samantha Morton is in this movie, and in a kind of one-scene performance that really mm-hmm. knocks you out um, as, a, as a former employee of, of Harvey Weinstein. Uh, I think she's really good in that kind of one-scene role, which is oftentimes very hard to do to kind of, like, make a big impact, and she nails it. Yeah. And, uh, and Ashley Judd actually is in this movie playing herself, which can oh. be kind of dicey uh, sometimes. And I think that they managed to handle it really well and it makes it feel very uh, natural. And and she does a really good job. Uh, I was I was a little bit surprised to see it because um, that's kind of a high water act when you, even if it's an actress who is playing themselves, you know, it can be kind of distracting. It can kind of, you know, the hardest role you have to play is yourself as an actor, a lot of the times people say. So I was, I was surprised by the choice, but I think it, it ends up paying dividends. Very cool. Yeah, I definitely look forward to seeing that one. And, uh, you know, it's, there's so much out right now that it's like getting a little bit overwhelming and I already feel like I'm behind. There's so many things I want to see in theaters, but I don't know how you, Bill, and, and Noah feel right now, but <laughs> I'm definitely like trying to catch up with so many things right now. Oh, yeah, <clears throat> absolutely behind, but story of my life. So, you know, I've, um, <laughs> catch I, up I've given up on it trying to be caught up in any sense of the word on movies <laughs> or shows. I'll watch well, the, it when I watch it. The next <laughs> no time problem. Bill and I are going to be talking about a movie, it's going to be Die Hard. So there's not that much pressure on Bill <laughs> to catch up on 2022 releases, I think. Yeah, but Alex needs to catch up on an all-time classic. Uh, so. <laughs> oh, I was not aware that that was That's what you hadn't seen. Be one of my, my, yeah, one of our uh, holiday specials for uh, my other podcast, Socially Distance. Alex is going to watch Die Hard. Because I'm like, Alex, let's talk about Die Hard. Christmas like, movie. He's like, I've never seen Die Hard. I'm like... You've seen every movie <laughs> ever. How? And he's it just, does feel and he like Alex has seen I'm every like, movie. I'm like, no, 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 no. This is now happening. <laughs> this is. I'm sure he's seen Die Hard, the television show. That was the thing, right? No, it was not. Thank God. It was Lethal Weapon. <laughs> no, Lethal Weapon, <laughs> Lethal Weapon was, was, and I did watch a couple of episodes of that. It was I. really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, Bill, what has been good for you recently? What have you been watching? The best Star Wars show no one's watching, and or... Uh, it's the best. Um, I am watching it. The that, person who and never I, watches TV, I am also watching it. Good. And if you've not watched it over Thanksgiving weekend, you could watch it on every Disney-owned channel, ABC, Freeform, and there's something So else. every channel. And FX, yeah. So Every channel. Which Everywhere. is great. 
you should watch it. It's a great show. The penultimate episode just aired. Uh, this show is, if you, it, it's like you don't need the lore and legend of Star Wars to really get into it. It's what I always wanted out of Rogue One, which movie I liked. Uh, I wanted it to be a series because I'm like, wow, intrigue and rebellion and spies and war. That sounds like a really cool show. And that's what this is. Uh, Stellan Skarsgård is just giving the performance of his life in this. He's amazing. Like, literally, like, he's just the character actor. You know, he's in everything. Uh, from, you know, Marvel to that King Arthur movie that I only like. And, like, every movie in between. Uh, it, that great movie. Great bad movie. Love it. I watched it with my dad, like, a hundred times. It's awesome. Um, <clears throat> and um, he gives just this brilliant performance. I, I, he just, he stops the show every time they're, every time they're like, Hey, can you just monologue here? He just stops the show and you have to pay attention because he's that great. Uh, Diego Luna is also great in this as Cassie Nandor, the title character, really talking about the beginnings of the rebellion, a story we've never really explored in the star Wars universe. It's always like we're smack dab in the middle of it. <laughs> or if the new ones were just rehashing what we've been, which I have no problem with, but it's just a rehash. And this is the start of it. And it's great. And also Andy Serkis has a, a supporting a guest stint on the show. He is excellent. It is very, it's, it's very serious, but not too heavy. It, it is a very well acted, well paced show. That's just everything you wanted in star Wars. It's, it's so mature and it's, it's not like filled with Jedis and Skywalkers. And, you know, every once in a while you'll get a stormtrooper or an alien or some reference here and there, but it's not like heavy star Wars lore where you're just like, okay, how are we crowbarring this character in for nostalgia's sake? And outside of the Mandalorian, which Alex and I, I think have varying opinions on, um, this is the best Star Wars show they've done. And one of the best Star Wars things Disney has done since acquiring the Star Wars property outside of the rides, because those rides that, that Millennium Falcon ride is pretty great. When you see it up close, you just want to cry. I didn't do that three years ago. I won't do that in a week or so. Uh, nope, not going to cry in front of the Falcon. Uh, spoilers, I'm going to cry in front of the Falcon. Um, but yeah, Andor is great. And you don't have to be a Star Wars head to really enjoy it. It's just brilliant performances, great writing. Uh, Tony Gilroy, who did Michael Clayton, a movie and Alex and I both adore, um, is show running this. Great, Justin, I, we have more Michael Clayton heads. It's great. Uh, if you ever do a Michael Clayton podcast, let me know. Um, and it's just like, so one, go see Michael Clayton too. Uh, but this is a great show. Great. It's like, you really should be checking this out. It's on Disney Plus. It's, I think, the only streaming service I watch. Um Aside of when Great British Bake Off is on, so yes, Andor is my show. Yeah, I got I got a second that I haven't watched. I'm on episode. I just finished episode nine. I'm a little bit. How, how many episodes are supposed to come out? Twelve or thirteen? Twelve. Twelve. So episode 12. 11, so 11 just dropped. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so I'm just I'm, I'm just slightly behind. Um, but it's great. And I have oh, to yeah, say, oh yeah, ten is a ten is ten is incredible. Ted's so that's. Everyone was saying, oh, man, the last line of episode nine is one of the best closing lines ever. When I got to it, I was like, OK, I get it. I get the I get why people were hyping this. Uh, yeah. It's a great I won't spoil it, but it's it's a fan. It's a perfect moment. Um, and I second everything you said. I mean, I love the Jedi and Sith stuff. I love the I love the, the big picture stuff in Star Wars, too. But, you know, what you were saying and what everyone like what got me interested in the show is when I saw Alex and, and a bunch of other people saying this is like 
outside of the big picture superpower stuff, how do the normal people within the empire itself function and how do the normal people under the empire function? And I like, I really like the balance they strike between here are the people within the empire making it be the empire because uh, the empire was always explicitly fascist. Uh, but of course that needs, what? you need regular people. You need regular people accepting it and working yeah. within it to make that function. And it's like, okay, here are the regular people who make the empire, the empire, like who, you know, actually embody, like who actually yeah. like enforce the power of, of the Sith. And then here are the day-to-day lives of the regular people who don't have superpowers to allow them to, you know, get past the stormtroopers. Here's how they deal with all of that stuff in their day-to-day lives. Which should um, be a really boring. Good sense of it should be boring as balls, but it's not. It really is like no, it, the way it, they structure. It doesn't have great. to be boring though. You just have you just yeah. have to commit to the storytelling to creating sense to creating a sense of place, and they do that yeah. with the plan. It's like you these are lived these feel like lived in environment. Yeah, it's, I have not seen this yet, um, but I've heard amazing things. On Alex's recommendation, I also took the time to watch the the Kenobi show, which I also, I get some of the criticisms, but I personally, for the most part, really liked it and thought it was a great, like, return for, for Ewan McGregor. So yeah, I have to say, great. between, uh, and I haven't seen everything, all of the other shows, like, I haven't seen The Mandalorian yet. I'm going to cop to that now. But, but right, just between Andor um kenobi and the star wars vision series Mm. uh the star wars tv stuff that disney has done miles leagues ahead of the movies don't watch don't watch book of boba fett to keep that streak going (laughs) (laughs) not not that they're perfect but just the movies last jedi was great force awakens and the rise of skywalker i don't know if i'm ever going to watch either of those movies again for as long as i live like i just i have no desire to revisit them Whereas, like, the shows are just, they're doing so much more, so much better stuff with the shows than the movies, which I find very interesting. Because when we just had the prequels, I was like, well, the the books are way better than the prequel movies were. And now we're at a place where the TV stuff is the best new Star Wars content that's coming out. It's it's an interesting time to be a Star Wars fan. Yeah, and what I would say is that the Andor is, like, head and shoulders above everything else that they put out on the TV side of things. Like, I think it's just so tremendous. Um, I, I did recommend to Noah that he should watch Obi-Wan. Um, but that was, the recommendation was, I think you're going to like this a lot more than I did. Uh, yeah. so uh, that was a, that was a Noah specific recommendation and I, I was right. I, so I'm happy to hear I, that. I, I like the episode that apparently everyone thought was the worst episode. So, but, uh, <laughs> but Justin, of all of the ones that you, since you have opted out on all of it, I would definitely say Andor is the one to watch. That's what I hear. Yeah. And quite honestly, like, I'm probably more excited about the fact that Tony Gilroy is behind it than the fact that it's even connected with Star Wars at all. <laughs> so, and you really it, feel it him behind the camera. Yeah. yeah. So right. many so many scenes just in, like, the central intelligence office where there's, like, inner, po- like, yeah. there's inner office politics and yeah, people at great. each other's heels. Like, the kind of stuff that Tony mm-hmm. Gilroy just, like, completely owns at. Yeah. I what? Who's the name of the head ISB guy in that, that bureaucratic office? Well, it's uh, it's Kyber from Game of Thrones. I'm just gonna call him yeah. Nigel. Yeah, no, I'm trying, but I, I don't know what his character name is. I, I'm blanking. Uh, I know I, the actor, I but I don't know like his Star Wars character he names. He feels like crazy. Just call him Steve uh, or something like that. He, That's fine. he, he's he's obviously not Tarkin from uh, A New Hope, but he feels and sounds and talks like like Grand Moff Tarkin. Like yeah. it is that character reborn. You, we know it's not the same character. 
but it's the same vibe. It's just, it's great. I love, he's, he's, he might be my favorite of like the, the, the lesser side characters. Yeah, and if it's Kyburn, then it's funny you just said the lesser because that is his name, Anton Lesser. So, <laughs> nice. oh, the force yeah. works in anyway. mysterious ways. He's popping up in a lot of things I'm noticing. Anyway, um, he's got a good agent. Go, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm gonna go next, uh, and I'm gonna recommend a 2022 film. That's right, a film from this year because I'm done with 2021. Gas. <laughs> what? Gas. So this I know. is from January of 2022. Is it came out? How then? dare you, sir? <laughs> it's actually much more recent than that, uh, and it's the movie Till, uh, which we oh. talked about a little bit in our fall preview. Um, I've been watching, like, I saw this a little while ago, but I've been watching so many older things since then that I'm like, I think this was the last, like, really good thing I watched. Uh, And I can heartily recommend it. I would say this is uh, from uh, co-writer and director Chinonya Chuku, uh, who, of course, did Clemency from a few years ago, which I thought had one of the best performances of the year, uh, even though nobody talked about it or seemingly saw it apart from me. Uh, The film is Clemency, starring the great Alfred Woodard. And uh, I think she's kind of done a similar thing here with with Till, which also boasts an incredibly powerful um, lead performance, this time from Danielle Deadweiler, who is an actress who is newer to me. Um, People may know her from Station Eleven. I'm sure Alex does. (laughs) I know that he's seen that show. Um, But I also knew I think people might also recognize her. Possibly Uh, she played Cuffy in The Harder They Fall, the uh, Netflix Western uh, from last year, uh, where I thought she made a real impression, was not familiar with her before then, and I was so happy when I saw she was going to be leading this movie. She plays Mamie Till Mobley, who was an activist whose son uh, was Emmett Till, who you may recognize that name. He was um, unfortunately uh, murdered in a, a lynching in Mississippi in the mid-50s. But the thing that I was uh, really looking forward to about the movie was that it really seemed to be centered on uh, Mamie and her advocacy. And I think what the film does, I think if you're a little worried that this might just be a lot of miserableism, that it's just a lot of suffering, um, it's so much more than that. It's about how she's able to channel her grief into advocacy. And that's the really powerful thing to me about the movie. And you can actually see it in Deadweiler's performance. There's this great scene where she's basically um, standing above the body of her son, who is who's lying, you know, who's dead. And you can see the mo like the moment in her eyes where she makes the decision that it's not just going to be about her wallowing grief. She's going to do something about it. And she does it all wordlessly. And it's a reason why I think she's going to be in the conversation, at least for the award season. Um, but it's just a great performance, even if it doesn't get any acclaim, just like Woodard's was in in Clemency. Because it's so dynamic and she's able to communicate so much beyond just a mother's grief. Of course, she does that really well. But it's going even beyond that to this other place, too. What can we do about this? And also recognizing, I think the film does this really well. The film around her does a really good job of showing how important struggle is without showing that triumph is a guarantee. And there's really not a lot of triumph <laughs> in this movie as the, the way it should be. Um but it's really about the struggle and how that is worth something and valuable. And I think also the supporting performers here are really good. 
um, Frankie Faison, who is a, a character actor I really like a lot. He was in The Wire playing the original police commissioner yep. um, in That's the great. Baltimore Police Department. Um, he was also great recently in a film called The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, playing the lead role, um, plays her father, and is very good. Um, Kevin Carroll, who was so good in uh, the who I know from The Leftovers, and of course, Alex will as well, um, is really great here playing one of her uh, sort of, I guess, legal aides. I believe it's it's her cousin. Um, and he's just really good to the point where I didn't recognize it was Kevin Carroll until I saw the credits. <laughs> That's how good he is. Um, but, yeah, this is just really worth uh, really worth your time. Um and as I would just say to anybody who's concerned, like we don't actually see uh, the murder when it happens. This does a really good job of avoiding any kind of um, exploitation of the event and just really drills down into um, action. And I think that's a really great approach for this story and uh, is really, I think, captured really beautifully. And um, so, yeah, if you're a little if you're thinking that maybe this is just about the performance or you're thinking like it's going to be too it's just going to be too much about suffering. It's so much more than that. And uh, really, uh, really worth your time. Yeah, I'm glad that you saw it and had a chance to talk about it here. I'm very interested in it. Um, I've heard some mixed reviews, but what I've what the thing that is consistent is how great Daniel Detweiler is. And that's not at all a surprise, because, as you said, I have I think I, I spent many nights trying to get you to watch uh, Station Eleven based off of the strength of her performance, among many others. <laughs> uh, she's just truly phenomenal in that movie, uh, or in that TV show, rather. Uh, and, uh, and yes, this is a really great showcase for her, for people who don't watch uh, streaming miniseries in the middle of winter. Uh, so that's good news for her. She also uh, got cast in the new J.J. Abrams TV show for HBO Max that was going to be like a billion-dollar production and then got uh, canceled. So um, it was a real bummer uh, for, to see her get that opportunity and then have it uh, stripped away from her. So I really hope this is the start of a very exciting career because she was just so surprising and interesting on that show in ways that I just was not prepared for. So I, I'm, I'm excited for this to be the second of a long journey uh, film career for her. Yeah, I hope so as well. She definitely deserves it because she brings it. <laughs> so, um, Noah, do you want to close this out here? What's been good for you recently, apart from Andor, of course? Well, so the the other thing I want to talk about, just because I got to get some thoughts off my chest, is this is uh, I, I was going to close with Andor to, in a positive note, but alongside Andor over the past week, uh, my wife and I watched the fourth season of The Dragon Prince, uh, which oh, returned after yeah. a th- which returned after a three year hiatus. The background for listeners who don't know is the Dragon Prince is a Netflix um, produced animated series. And one of the main creators of the show, uh, Aaron Ahaj or Ahaz, I'm not sure how you pronounce that, uh, was not one of the creators, but he was he did a lot uh, of the writing and directed a number of episodes for Avatar The Last Airbender. A lot of the praise that the show has been getting is for doing a lot of representation in terms of characters of color, uh, disabled characters, and having also a lot of queer themes. It's this kind of medieval magic, humans, elves, dragons setting. So that like that's that's the basic that's the basic setup. So in a lot of ways, kind of a, a classic fantasy setting, but with you know more more queer and color representation than you would usually get in a show of this nature so that in and of itself is good but right when the third season was coming out and this is all pre-pandemic uh and right when i was catching up for the show 
a bunch of really bad allegations against um, Aaron Ahaz came out uh, from people who'd worked with him under a number of projects that he was just really just kind of a sexist dick uh, to women and just created a very toxic environment for the women that he was working with. And that really, like, I, I talked about this actually on this show, an episode where our good friend Aaron um, came on as a guest. He and I had a, had a big back and forth about the show. That was, I think, exactly three years ago. Because uh, it was the end of 2019 as well. So there's this big hiatus. Uh, the, the pandemic definitely played a role in the show being delayed before it came back. I'm not really a fan of the type of commuter-generated animation they're going for on the show. I, I try to be supportive and inclusive in terms of animation styles, but the animation has never really done it for me. I always felt like the show was not quite able to thread the needle between, okay, we have this big idea, this big concept fantasy idea, uh, but we're also doing fourth wall breaking jokes and we're doing a lot of silly humor because we're also a kid show. But we very, very, very obviously want to get, you know, the old Avatar crowd watching the show because our references to the Avatar are like acme weights that just land in the middle of an episode. I felt like the result was always kind of a mixed bag. I felt like it did come together really well at the end of the third season. And I was like, OK, I, I like where this is going. I feel like this is on a good trajectory. Then came the accusations at that time very fresh against the main show crew. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And I said this in our, in our episode with Aaron. I was like, we, we have to wait and see. Like, is he going to step down? Is the show going to get canceled? So the fourth season airs after a three-year break. And it shows. It really pains me to say this because the good stuff, especially in terms of representation, is still there. And that is worthwhile. It's worth supporting and worth having that in animation and in children's entertainment. But I just, you feel the break. And apparently the show has been, has already been greenlit for another three seasons, which is odd given how many critically acclaimed animated shows have been getting the axe lately from other companies. This feels like a show that's lost its way and no longer quite knows what it's trying to do and how to get there. I, I'm sorry that's to, to be a bit of a bummer about this, but like this has kind of been weighing on me since the end of the, I watched the end of the season. I was like, I don't know if I can keep going with the show, man. Like, there's good stuff in here. I want to celebrate that, but I feel like I can't because we've got other stuff that does all of this and doesn't have baggage. Noelle Stevenson and like a lot of these other, you know, queer and, and, and female and, and, you know, non-white male creators doing children's entertainment are not carrying this baggage into the shows that they're making. So I don't know. You could always watch Bluey, which is everyone's favorite uh, animated best, cartoon these days. Best best animated show you're ever going to watch. Anyway. I, I'll recommend uh, just like nepotism. Like go watch Hilda if you like that stuff. Because you know, oh, I just Hilda. Two of my best two of my best friends worked on that show. One Emmy's for it. You know, oh, really? I gotta. I gotta there you yeah, go. Listen, I gotta put people over. That's what no, I do. there you go. Hilda's <laughs> great. Hilda's amazing. There you go. That's my. Don't watch the Dragon Prince. Watch Shira. Watch Hilda. Hilda, they just did the concluding movie for it, and it's yep. great. It's an amazing way to wrap up the story and the characters. There's our positive. <laughs> so, we're going to be talking about, of course, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, the new film from Ryan Coogler, as I said before the long-awaited sequel for a movie that I think has retained its cultural cachet, uh, the original from 2018. 
and a film that I greatly enjoyed rewatching before watching this one. So I wanted to give our guest the first word on his thoughts. And I know, Bill, you've talked about this film quite a bit before this. So I expect that you're an expert at this point. But just give us your general take on the movie. How did you receive uh, this long-awaited sequel? Oh, <clears throat> it's... Uh... I think I said on both the, uh, you can check us out, Bill versus the MCU and Socially Distanced, which both just dropped the most recent episodes. Um, this was the impossible film. It really was an impossible film for Ryan Coogler to make. And boy, did he ever make it. Like, he was able to help. It, it was a great ending to the phase four of the MCU because this was the ultimate bit of trauma that had to be dealt with as the overarching theme of that phase is. Because it wasn't just the trauma that the characters with the MCU had to deal with. It was the trauma that everyone had to deal with. That fans had to deal with the loss of Chadwick Boseman. That the cast had to deal with the loss of someone who seemed absolutely beloved. Uh, Ryan Coogler had to deal with this because he almost quit filmmaking because Chadwick Boseman passed away. And Marvel had to make the decision. You know, they had to process like, okay, this is, he was our guy. Now we have to move on. And we have to do something with this. And to me, you could have also never made this film and Black Panther still would be an iconic, one of the best comic book slash superhero movies you're ever going to see. Um, but they did something amazing here. They they told a story about trauma and grief. They made a great action film. They introduced an amazing new staple to the MCU, which I feel very justified by because I said, uh, to a number of friends. I'm like, I, I wonder if they're going to make a Submariner movie. And everyone's like, you're an idiot. Why would they do the movie with the guy with wings on his ankles? Guess what? The guy with wings on his ankles is pretty cool. Vindicated. I mean, people well, said the but, same thing about, you can't make a movie about a talking raccoon and make that make that relatable. And Marvel's like, watch us, motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know we could drop F-bombs on this podcast, but let's fucking go. So it's like, <laughs> uh, it's like, you know, so it's, I, you know, you watched it and it, the, he was able, they were able to give like, they hit like, every, they checked every box. It's like a uh, potential Oscar nominated performance as yes. Uh, very random Julia Louis-Dreyfus uh, cameos. Yes. Uh, like I said, great action, new characters. They just were able to make a film that was just at every point serious and emotional, but also just still a great popcorn flip film and it's also something that generations could enjoy i've seen this film twice i took my seven-year-old daughter to see it and i was like i don't know if you're gonna like this movie i took halfway through the movie as she does she had to go to the bathroom and she's just like i'm like okay what do you think of the movie and she's like this is a great movie she's never described a movie as great before so she's like this is a great movie i can't wait to actually watch it again i was halfway through the movie and she had, and I was like, do you still want to see it again after it was over? She's like, yeah, that was great. And so, I mean, it's able to speak to all sorts of audiences coming out of something that we never thought would get made or how could they make something this good? This is testament to just Ryan Coogler and his team and his cast about how great they are. And that's all I really got to say. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure you're probably getting tired of saying it at this point. <laughs> Oh, I'll never get tired of saying it. I'll shout it from the I'll shout it from the rooftops every day if I have to. And you know, Kevin Feige can send me a check. I have to. I have a fear of heights. So. Oh sure. <laughs> right. <laughs> what about you, Noah? How did you uh, How did you react to this film? Oh man. So I. I mean, I loved it. And, and as I was watching it, I was like, they're pulling it off. They're doing. You know, as Bill said, this was you had. 
I mean, first off, you had the first hurdle of, you know, the first movie was great. Lightning in a Bottle had this incredible cultural, not just a great movie, an incredible cultural moment, like just this powerful touchstone for the African diaspora around the world. Um, you know, best up up until this point, and I, I think at this point, I would still say, like, the first Black Panther, for me, is still the number one Marvel movie. It's my personal favorite, and in my opinion, the best just movie. Um, so you have just coming back to that well is always, when you have that type of success, it's always hard to go back to that same well with increased expectations and come even close to making it good. That's the first hurdle. Yeah. Um, second hurdle you know, the, you know, this, this defining, you know, again, and like Chadwick Boseman's embodiment of the character was just as much a cultural touchstone as the movie itself was. Um, and everything that I've heard said, like, like Boseman was aware of this and knew that and like worked that into how he carried himself as a public figure to lose that person. That's the second hurdle to try. Do you replace him? Do you kill the character off? How do you work around that and have it be a believable story and not have it be just ha and not have it, you know, not make sense? Uh, that's the second hurdle. Then you have the third hurdle of the pandemic, um, which through production, which, you know, not just for this movie, but for 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 everything, you know, through everything up in the air in terms of when and how can we even make this movie? Uh, then on top of that, and to a lesser degree, you had Letitia Wright. And it was kind of like everyone said, oh, she's definitely like Shuri is definitely going to be the character who's going to like step up in T'Challa's absence if they don't recast T'Challa, which I, I'm one of those who's like great idea to just have T'Challa be dead and not try to like pretend that nothing happened. That that's that would have killed it for me. Um, then you had some pandemic related stuff where Wright was, you know, going on about being anti-vax and that was disappointing. And then you're like, OK, is that drama going to overshadow the movie? And like make it be an awkward thing um like in the what was the movie that we were all dumping on don't worry darling <laughs> have it be a don't worry darling sort of thing where like the back screen the the off-screen drama overshadows the film itself so you had like three or four i was four gonna say layers. that's the first time first and last time anyone's gonna be like yeah taking don't worry darling and wakanda forever putting them in the same <laughs> sentence outside of these are two I'm saying, movies yeah just i know just the most recent example of the off-screen drama overshadowing the, so no, you, I had totally like, get it. you had like totally three or four layers of hurdles for any like it in and it in any way, this could have tripped up the production of the movie, um, the quality of the movie, or people's reaction to the movie. It could have been a great movie, and people just responded wrong to it, and it, you know, it lands yeah. with a thud. All of these things could have tripped it up, and Ryan Coogler and his team and his cast cleared all of them. They, this was exactly the movie that it needed to be. I feel like, I, I feel like it would not be fair for me to compare this even to Black Panther or rank or other movies and to like rank it. Because in this particular case, like it's like this is a movie beyond, oh, is this better or worse than Black Panther? Is this just as good as this top five? It's it's like it is what it has to be. And I can't I, I can't it I can't compare it to anything else. You know what I'm saying? Like for yeah. me, this like any any future rankings I do of, oh, these are my favorite Marvel movies. Wakanda Forever will be like on the side as and Wakanda Forever was also great. But I'm not going to do it and other movies a disservice by trying to like slot it into a ranking system. So I felt all that watching the movie. I was like, they're doing it. They're pulling it off. This is a great movie. Like, it's a big movie, you know, two hours and 40 minutes. You know, my wife was like, what, it's that long? And I'm like, well, yeah, well, we'll see. It doesn't feel that long. I'm in it the entire time. 
And then we get all the way to the end. And I was like, I, I, I kind of, I was composed the entire time. I, I could hear other people in the theater crying. And I have to uh, say this, this, that, you have to me. see this movie in theaters. You have to see this movie with a crowd. Like this is one of those movies. <clears throat> I mean, A, it just, it looks better on the big screen. And B, you need to see this with other people. Like this is a communal experience. Um, I was like composed for all of that. And then as the credits were rolling, um, after, after the mid credit scene, you know, I heard just, I, I turn I turned to, to Stella, to my wife, to ask like what she thought. And before I even said anything, she just said, he would have liked it. And I said, what do you mean? And she just said, Chandra Bozeman, he would have liked it. And then I broke down. Jesus. Then the tears came. I was like, damn. Yeah. Yeah. He would. I, th- I think, and I think he does like it. I think he's looking down on Ryan Coogler and everyone saying, you did it guys. You're carrying my spirit on. So it, it, this is a movie that that transcends that for me it transcends any discussion of oh where does this rank in the top marvel movies is this better or worse than black panther it's it's the best possible sequel to black panther under all of the circumstances that it had to be that it that that went into its creation so that that's the that's the overarching summary then for for the details about aspects of the movie we'll, we'll get into that later yeah. What about? Wow, that's uh, <laughs> quite quite a reaction. Um, Alex, how did you feel about this? I kind of know. I have some idea, but I'm curious about your specific thoughts on this one. I was there. Yeah. Well, he as wept. as with he Bill, <laughs> I as with Bill, uh, you could hear more of my thoughts on this uh, movie by listening to Bill versus the MCU, which came out uh, this past week. Uh, so I'm going to try to keep it a little bit brief here and, and let my co-hosts have their time in the sun on this on this movie. But I'll, I will say I really enjoyed this. I got to see it with Bill in person. It was the first thing that we got to do together in person after being friends for three years. So that was fun. Um, yep. And yeah, I think that this movie works fantastically. It is not the first Black Panther. The first Black Panther is my favorite Marvel movie. I think it's, it's one of the few... Uh, comic book movies that really transcend what it means to be a comic book movie, and I say that as someone who likes comic book movies. So it, it's not that, and it, it likely never could be. But what it is is a really kind of unique animal of this thing that has to service so many different masters, and we've seen movies like this in the past just completely crumble under the weight of that, and I think it's pretty remarkable that this movie holds together as well as it does. It really does give a very powerful narrative about grief and loss and how you move on uh which is not an easy thing to do in a comic book movie um but certainly is a common theme throughout the entire marvel phase four uh which again if you want to hear more about that listen to bill versus the mcu um but it what it also is is a fantastic uh introduction to the character of namor played by uh, tena Huerta, who is fantastic he is really sexy and really charismatic and really fun and scary when he needs to be and charming when he needs to be. I was going to ask, Alex, where, where in the crusher meter are we with you and more? I, well, I mean, Listen, if, he can, if, he, if he can get, is this, is this an appropriate gills, question to ask? We need to do an adult version of this, of this episode. Yeah. No, well, you can listen, also hear some of that on our podcast. On Bill vs. the MCU, yeah, we certainly get into a little bit of uh, <laughs> Bill vs. the MCU After Dark uh, in the most recent episode. So, um, uh, I, But I, what I didn't once, learn I about, I did not know until after we recorded that, that they actually photoshopped out um, Tena Cuerta's, uh bulge uh, from his I was wondering suit. if I should bring that up. <laughs> 
I just I feel like that is it was homophobic and I'm offended uh, that they did that to us. Uh, they you real might have sense a lawsuit. of betrayal. You might have a lawsuit. Yeah, absolutely. Against. It's a class action lawsuit against all of us yes. who, who appreciate <laughs> that man's body. Uh, but in any case, great job on the casting, making the guy with the with the wings. Uh, that charismatic and cool uh and yeah just an excellent character introduction i can't wait to see what they do next with him uh in that world uh the undersea uh world that they created was like nothing i've ever seen before and you know they did that once with wakanda and it's really hard to be like yeah we're gonna ask you to do that again and also make it completely different uh and they nailed it in a way that i was really shocked by and you know i mean we saw we saw aquaman where you go to Atlantis and it's like this silly cartoon thing where there's like, you know, uh, octopus playing the drums and like, uh, you know, jellyfish dresses and, and it was fine and it was silly and it, it felt right for that for that movie. But this is is an underwater kingdom like we've never seen before in a way that I really respected. So I, I really love the character introduction. Let's just, Aquaman would not stand a chance in Telecom. Let's just get that out of the way. I don't know. Right he now. seems like a pretty rad dude. He seems on the level. Yeah, very in I, I touch think that they would his, have a good time together. Chakras, third eyes open, guys. I mean, he's he's a cool guy. I I, I think that um, remember that Jason Momoa in Aquaman is playing a man named Arthur. Uh, never, <laughs> <laughs> never believable. But anyway, I think Arthur would get along really well with uh, with Namor. I think they would have a good time together. Uh, I mean, it's I still would better than Duncan Idaho. Just drop that Dune uh, reference in no there. There's no better than Duncan Idaho, but that's all we're here to talk about today. <laughs> As a fan of professional wrestling, I can tell you, Duncan Idaho is one of the greatest names outside of Johnny Utah ever to be on cinema. <laughs> Concur. Uh, but yeah, so I, I really like this movie. And I will say some of the MCU stuff that it bogs it down a little bit yeah, it uh, does. for me, and I'm sure we'll get into that, I think. A lot of people have tagged the Riri Williams stuff as a problem. I think the Riri Williams stuff is actually a pretty smart uh, way to solve a character like a storytelling ish problem where you know we want to still have the audience surrogate character in Wakanda and last time around that was Everett Ross who I mean I, mean, <laughs> I love Martin Freeman but there is certainly uh, some aspect of having this middle-aged white guy running around the African kingdom being like whoa what is this like that just like doesn't totally you know it's it's well, a choice especially a CIA guy like a CIA yeah. guy who specializes in like we know that he specializes in nation destabilization that yeah, is an established so, fact about it. What, what, right? like, what do you major in college for that? That's what I want to know. It's like a course <laughs> for that shit. That'd be great. Communications. Yeah, uh, <laughs> oh, fuck. I'm, I'm ready to go. All right. <laughs> but I, I, that was purposeful for that story, and I, and I understand why they chose to do that. But I like the idea of having that audience surrogate character being this this young, black, uh, like, MIT student who's 19 and uh, genius. Like, I like that being the the audience surrogate character instead. So I really liked her inclusion. I would say some of the things that didn't work as well is, uh, you know, like, the Midnight Angels setup didn't didn't totally land for me. I think that the the Val and Everett Ross, as much as when, when Val re- re- reveals that 
she was married to Everett Ross, me and Bill turned to each other and gave the exact reaction that Kevin Feige wanted us to, which was like, what? Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, like, all of that stuff could have been taken out of the movie, and it would have been a better movie for it. So, th- And we lose some time with characters that I actually really care about in this franchise, like Lupita Nyong'o's character. So th- that those are downsides, but overall, I really like this movie, and it's definitely top 10 MCU for me. And I know, Noah, you don't want to rank it alongside other things, but you know I compulsively rank things. It's a problem, so there was no yeah, doubt no, about it. Yeah, but that's my personal that's my personal like yeah but justin i'm very curious to hear what you thought about this movie he's like hated it bye uh definitely so i've seen this now twice uh the first time i saw it uh was not under ideal circumstances it was after i had gotten i think three hours of sleep i had uh i had a flight a very early flight which i had not originally scheduled but got pushed back which i think is the first time that's ever happened to me uh, but I was, you know, not to go too much into my personal life, but I was flying to Atlanta to visit my brother. Um, and I was able, you know, it was a good thing to be able to see this for the first time with him. Uh, and that was, you know, and that was good, but, uh, definitely felt the length of this. And I feel like that really, uh, the lack of sleep really amplified a lot of that, uh, still felt like I enjoyed it, but I did rewatch this yesterday and enjoyed it a lot more and got a lot more out of it. So um, I'm definitely a fan of this. I feel like I might be I, I just getting a sense just based on what I've heard so far. I might be the coolest of the four of us on it. Um, I don't know if it's I certainly wouldn't rank it anywhere close to the original, uh, especially rewatching it recently. Um, Did your really, opinion of the original improve? Because you were also the coolest abs- on the original. Yes, yes. Um, the thing that really struck me was how much of a well-oiled machine that movie is from beginning to end. Um, everything ties together. And also the thing I forgot, so I forgot how angry T'Challa was at his father. Um, and that that isn't really, like, there's not really a moment where after he confronts his father, the ancestral plane, where they have, like, a reconciliation or anything. It's just, all right, on to the, I've kind of, I've discarded the the aspects of the past that are no longer relevant to the time that we're living in and i'm good we're going forward from there um really liked that uh but also really liked how there's little part of the world building that i think i missed the first time was there's a lot of little subtle critiques of wakanda in the first part of that movie and i think if you're just kind of experiencing at least for me when i was experiencing it the first time i was just kind of wrapped up in what i was seeing kind of overwhelmed by a lot of it and seeing it the second time, like, oh, they're kind of they're giving you little hints of the chinks in the armor of Wakanda. And I think those are the chinks that Killmonger ends up exploiting. So I really just appreciated the, you know, what it was doing structurally. And uh, I think just had a better sense of the kind of movie it was uh, when I saw it, which I think really helped. Uh, and I think it's like if it's not my number one, it's maybe my number two just beyond just behind uh, Endgame, perhaps. Uh, so I did. It did really improve for me. Um, and I think my reaction to seeing the second one is that it doesn't feel as cohesive as that one. However, seeing it a second time, I realized it was much more cohesive than I had first given it credit for. Um, there's a really nice flow to this film. It centers uh, Shuri, Letitia Wright's character, in a way that I really appreciated. Um, and that really felt like I really felt the her sort of emotional journey through this. Um I agree with you about I'm glad, Alex, because I wasn't sure how you felt like a lot of the more extraneous MCU building stuff maybe didn't work as well for me. However, I will say seeing the second time, it bothered me less 
Um, it didn't, yeah. but there are little things that there were little things that maybe took me out of the movie for, um, um, there were maybe little things that took me out of the movie. Some, some filmmaking choices perhaps, but overall I was just really, I have to say I was very invested in this world and I just really loved seeing, you know, kind of seeing these characters really be tested, uh, maybe in a way that they hadn't in the first movie. I think you really see it with Sherry. I think you see it with Ramunda, Angela Bassett's character, who, um, please, can we, at some point, can we get that woman an Oscar, please? <laughs> like, come on. Um, yeah. But, you know, and just, I really loved a lot of the supporting cast. I love Winston Duke in this. Just, I think I cracked up at every single thing he said. But also, he's able to sell a lot of the emotional moments as well. Um, just found a lot of his his scenes with Shuri very moving. Um, yeah, there's a lot more that I'm sure we'll get into. But uh, I really appreciated this a lot more the second time. And uh, I agree with everything you said about uh, Tanakh Huerta here. Just really felt like a different character, a different kind of... Um, I don't even know if I want to call him like a straight-up villain, but like certainly a very interesting antagonist. Oh, no. No, 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 um, not a villain. Definitely not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I mean, the big question, your opinion on the eradication of his bulge is the big question. From yeah, well, I'm, that I'm we need to know. That is the true <laughs> colonial erasure. <laughs> White men insecure about their tiny penises. Well. That's why you're Irish, you just accept it and you just move on. <laughs> it's like smoke it if you got him. As not, someone who's a quarter Irish can confirm. <laughs> whatever, man. Um, do what you got to do. Sometimes you got to work harder. I'll just say before we uh, get into some of the other things, I was actually familiar with Huerta before this in a very oh. different movie called Hueros from Alonso Ruiz Palacios, a, a Mexican film from actually quite a while now, like almost 10 years ago. <laughs> but playing, uh, I would say, a character that is no less sexy, but is sexy more in like a kind of, uh, laid back kind of way so it was really nice to see a different side of him um here i would highly recommend that film by the way um it's a very it's very meta in a lot of ways but it's uh it's really entertaining um so yeah i just i really appreciate what this film was doing um there's like i said there's maybe a few things that give me a pause like maybe a little bit i have a few reservations um but overall just really appreciated this and appreciated the um just the depth of the performances and the emotions. Um, and I think the cast has a lot, uh, you know, has uh, deserves a ton of credit for being able to pull that off. But we did get into it a little bit. I guess I'm curious how you guys feel about the, because Alex, you you kind of talked about your opinion on it, uh, how the rest of you feel about the introduction of Talokan and of the uh, Atlanteans at large. How did you feel like that worked, uh, like, how did it work for you, and how did you feel like it worked with what the movie was trying to do? Well, I feel that, you know, if you know Namor, he was, you know, very Leonard Nimoy-esque. And that's all I just took him as, very white dude with pointy ears. And I think to take it and take another version of Namor and to put him into this, uh, you know, Mayan Aztec type of vibe and to really ex explore that and to parallel it between Wakanda, you know, they're very similar. And just like, I was just like, listen, these people came and get like, they gave his people smallpox. They literally essentially committed suicide to get away from it and then banish themselves in order to survive. 
and so is paralleling that perfectly with Wakanda and how they were isolated for so long. And it, it, it just, I think the way you were doing that, it wouldn't have worked if you used the traditional Namor vibe because it's just like, okay, he's just like a merman. He's just, he's essentially is then just Aquaman. And so by doing this, I, you I give, think it's been hinted that he is, or in some iterations, he's a mutant. No, he is a mutant. From what he I even say, yeah. he even says it in this in this film. He says he's a mutant. He says the big M word, and my friend friend uh, Gren, Ken Grandpierre probably almost had a heart attack because he's been waiting for a mutant <laughs> to show up. He's just like finally. We thought it was going to happen in one. He was convinced yeah. it was going to happen in Wandavision. Um, we're like, dude, they're not going to do it. Um, and he's like, he's like, no, 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 they might. Uh, obviously, they didn't. But. It, it, it really speaks to why he's not a villain. He's an antagonist to Wakanda because he's got a point and he has a, and he's justified in his actions and you can get behind his actions and you could emotionally invest in this character. Cause listen, I like Marvel, but you know, sometimes villains aren't their strongest point, Malekith. And like, you know, they don't always hit the, it's the worst fucking character I've ever seen in my life. Uh, it's 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 just awful. And I watched Harley Davidson of the Marlboro Man, and it's not a good movie. But like, I just also wanted to make that reference on this because I wanted just to bring it down just a little bit. My channel 11 WPIX viewings when I was seven to 14. Uh, anyway, at the point is this like you're able to you know relate to the to him more, and it makes the battle with Shuri at the end way more compelling because you're just like, oh, well, I don't like what Shuri's doing here because, you know, he's, Namor's just trying to fight for his people and she's on this path of vengeance and, but he's also on a path of vengeance. So it makes it very complicated and there's all sorts of shades of gray and, you know, you could go either way on who you're rooting for, which is always something I love with an antagonistic character. That's not just straight up. Well, that's the bad guy, you know? So I think, and it's also, lended to being this just beautiful unique scenery that you were just not expecting like you know we we're all like oh this will be cool but you didn't think they would go as grandiose as they did and i think like borrowing from mayan and aztec culture if you just go back and look in history books and stuff like beautiful architecture and stuff like that and they really played with that beautifully and uh, so everything they did with how they presented the talacon was way better if they just went up straight up like Aquaman and straight up like OG source material, in my opinion. Yeah. And I actually, I listened to an interview with Nate Moore, one of the producers on the film, and he said that, uh, that Kugler, it was really important to him that he would, that he would ground the, the Namor character and that civilization in something real and something authentic. And, uh, and he spent a lot of time researching different pathways to do that and stumbled across uh, this ancient Mayan language that they ended up modeling their the Telecon language off of and uh, really trying to to mirror what he was seeing in a lot of that research to make it have that sort of textured, grounded uh, place to start from. And I think that sometimes when we talk about like making comic book movies grounded and gritty and raw and real, it ends up being like the movies are embarrassed to be comic book movies and so they have to do this and it starts to feel sort of superficial and forced uh and self-conscious and this never feels that way this just feels like a great innovation for the character uh and nate moore said in that interview he specifically says like look we knew that namor's background backstory was just not that interesting and it needed something else so we went to to googler and and that and this is what they came up with and it's I think it really says something about Marvel that they're willing to make those changes when they when they feel like they need it. 
um, and they know what is core to this character and how to make him come to screen in a way that feels authentic um, to the source material while also updating it in ways that makes it feel necessary for a modern audience. I think that that is a really difficult uh, needle to thread in a lot of cases, and I think that they really went out of their way to do an excellent job here. But yeah, it all comes think, down to the casting more than anything else. Like, I mean, if, if Tenek Huerta is not <laughs> uh, doing what he's doing in this movie, a lot of this could fall apart. But he's I mean, just so fantastic. Yeah, I, what I think something important to, to throw in here as well, it's not just the aesthetic of the ancient Aztec and Maya civilizations that they took. Like, a lot of Aztec and Mayan descendants still live and still speak uh, variations of those languages um, today. So in a sense, there has been with... I mean, Central and South American indigenous indigenous peoples have faced similar just ignorance and erasure um, as indigenous populations within the United States um, as well. I, I saw there was an interesting thread that I, I read on Twitter talking about how, you know, a lot of Mexican media, you know, just focuses on, you know, light skinned, you know, descendant from Spanish uh, colonialist Mexicans and not indigenous darker skinned Mexican Mexican. So there's levels of erasure there as well. Or the fact that the ancient Incan language is still spoken by the Incan peoples who are the descendants of that empire that the Spanish crushed um, to establish their empire. So it's uh, th there's this th there's an incre there's there's a word it's important to I think there's an importance to Ryan Coogler putting the emphasis on having this showing these authentic parallels between an African nation that went fully internalized isolationist just to survive, um, and an indigenous, uh, an, an indigenous American people that did, took a same tactic also to survive, and the conflict that the movie bears out is really both of them taking those survivalist instincts or variations of that survivalism to its logical end, and the real tragedy is no, neither of these people should win out over the other because the world needs both. Like the world needs Talakan to survive and needs Wakanda to survive. Like they really like the the end result that the movie comes to of them forming alliances, which should happen. And that was that's what had me at the edge of my seat. Like uh like Namor should not die. Sharif should not die. Neither of them should win. They have to find out a way to realize like, wait, no, we're being stupid. Like we're and that's the dynamic that it, that happens a lot, where where peoples that are that suffer from colonialism or from imperialism um, internalize some of the worst aspects of that in a way that can become self-destructive over time. Um, so you almost have this place where these two nations that were able to escape the wrath, the worst of colonialism, uh, then turn on and destroy each other. Like that would have been the worst case scenario. And then you know both nations end up ruined and destroyed. And then it's all the, the more easy for France and the U.S. and other white Western powers to say, now's our chance. Now we can go get the vibranium and do all of those terrible things that we're dreaming of doing with it. Yeah. So we're kind of running up against the clock. But before we wrap up, I wanted to ask everybody if they could spotlight one performance in this movie that they really liked. Because this movie is so stacked full of incredibly talented actors giving some of their best performances. And I'm really curious which spoke to each of us. For me personally, I would say that uh, I, I would I would love to to give it to my girl Lake Bell because I think uh, she <laughs> she goes out 
early in this movie, extremely early, but I think that she does a really fantastic job anchoring the sequence when uh, the Telecon uh, soldiers attack the the mining um, facility uh, and just how much of a That's horror, a horror film sequence. That sequence. Yeah, it's is. a horror movie that gets spliced oh, into yeah. a Marvel film. And she yeah. just like is excellent as a final girl who gets got by the end of that scene. <laughs> so or I, I did really. She? I, well, yeah, we, we didn't see a body, well. so it's possible she returns. Um, and if you want to hear more about that speculation, listen to Bill vs. the MCU, because we get into that in depth. Uh, but so I really, really liked what she had to do, and I think that's the sort of thing that, like, everyone else in this movie gets a lot of time and a lot of context and a lot of history, and she just has to kind of just be there, and we don't know anything about her, and we need to be so emotionally invested in her situation uh, for that scene to work, and I really respect the job that she did. So, uh, but I would, but, so that's, like, my runner-up, and my uh, and my actual answer is Angela Bassett, because she's just, like, a force of nature in this movie. She's so incredible. The fact that she lands that, like, there, like, the, the speech that she gives her is, like, have I not lost everything? That's in every single trailer, and usually when a line like that, when a speech is in a trailer, by the time you see it in a movie, you're just like it, it just lessens the impact because you've seen it so much and somehow in context of that scene it actually is even more impactful than than when we saw it in the trailer so i i really give her a lot of respect i didn't think uh we were gonna have to say goodbye to her uh in the middle of this movie but that was a really bold choice and i think that she's excellent and i'm very sad that we won't get to see more of her moving forward in the mcu because because she deserves to be that sort of kind of like you know, that elder stateswoman uh, position uh, moving forward. So I'm a little bit bummed about that, but she completely put it all in this in this performance. So that's my number one. But uh, Bill, how about you? Um, I'm going to go with Denai Gurira as Okoye. I really, um, it's so funny because I covered The Walking Dead for so long on Pop Break and you do just get used to her in that role and that's the only role i've ever seen her in then she completely blew expectations out the water in black panther and then she comes here and uh i hated the diva plava laguna um outfit that they made the whatever blue angels or midnight suns or whatever midnight angels midnight, midnight sun <laughs> angel writer it's not good uh you know but i think she gives a brilliant performance here she's funny she's uh, and which which we didn't we saw a little bit of in the first one, but she was really funny in this one, especially with the Riri Williams stuff. Uh, but it's the scene where she's begging for forgiveness uh, and a second chance in front of Ramonda. And it's just she's brilliant. And I'm so glad she's stuck around in the MCU and they're going to invest more into her because she's great. Um, I just think she's just such a dramatic part of this movie. And when she's screaming for Ramonda to wake up and she's crying. It just shows more of that whole, it, it's a different side of what we saw in black Panther where she's like country first, country first, country first. Like she is a really fully, and she, who gave up her husband for country for her country. It's like, they even said that like give her a break. She gave up her husband. And then, but here is like, she actually, you see the emotional real person of Okoye instead of the super soldier Okoye who's still, very much alive and well in this film but to see her in that role and i'm just like great because this is another great emotional character that we could have in the mcu and can be placed wherever in the mcu i believe going forward and she's going to be an excellent addition to whatever property and i hope they do this and put her wherever they want to because i think she just adds to everything i mean she was great in Endgame and infinity wars she'll be great wherever put her in put her in new new new, new world order 
not a wrestling reference. No one gets with me. Um, <laughs> so it's just like put her in that. Put her in whatever. I'm I'm here for it. And she's Sophie. Well, she's most likely going to be anchoring her own Disney Plus show called Midnight Angels in uh, about two years. So we'll see more. Listen, she's Sophie Bodkin's number three favorite Marvel character behind Shuri and Tony Stark. So oh well, Fork and Carol Danvers. So she's up there. So I have to respect. Yeah. Well, okay. So you stole mine. You just okay. you just stole mine, Bill. <laughs> we have similar similar brains and similar facial hair. What can I tell Okoye, you? Okoye is my ride or die. So uh, what I'll do is so, I will. I'll just yeah, tag you on to take a second it. one. If I had, I have to be so I am going to give a shout out. Uh, I'm going to go with Michael B. Jordan. I was not expecting. Oof. I Oof. thought they were going to do with like we're going to resurrect Killmonger and try to make him to a good guy, which I was like uh, on the fence about. But the way they use him here as a representative of how because that mirrors what we saw in the first movie, where when Killmonger enters the the ancestral plane, it's in a way where he's clearly trapped by the trauma uh, and pain of his past. And that's exactly what's happening with Shuri at that moment in time. So I was like, hmm, it wouldn't make it be kind of weird for her to suddenly like see Chadwick Boseman or her mother and have a change of heart after that. But it's so thematically perfect for that moment to have it be Killmonger and to have him be the one like say to just dress her down and say, no, you're going you're going down. You're turning to the dark side. Like, that's what's happening here. I'm not going to bullshit you because <laughs> that's not Killmonger doesn't do bullshit. Um I think with that, Michael B. Jordan has now been in every single movie that Coogler has directed so far, which I'm all for that streak continuing. Uh, so that was that was the best possible way uh, to bring Killmonger back in any way um, in a Black Panther sequel. And Michael B. Jordan just sells the hell out of this scene because that's what he does. He's Michael B. Jordan. Yeah, a yeah. great one scene performance. Absolutely. Yeah. And I would just say to go to but just the whale from just to go back to Okoye for a second, the whale yeah. that Guerrero does when she realizes Shuri has lost. I mean, it's like she's lost a child. Like it's yeah. like yeah. she's that's beyond just duty to Wakanda at that point. Um, and it was like so good that I like felt it for the the rest of the next scene. <laughs> that's uh, that's absolutely it's true. Away from her, and then but you still hear like the echo of it. It's, yeah. oh. I, I honestly, I did for a second think that you were giving your best performance to the whale. In <laughs> to the whale. <laughs> the whale does do a great job. When Alex, when the whale pops up yeah. in Boston and I was like, I turned to Bill and I said, was that a whale? I was I couldn't <laughs> believe it, that they were riding whales. It was awesome. Two, two, two whales. Yeah. Um, but I'll actually spotlight somebody else. And it's funny because I don't know if I like how she's utilized, but I like her so much. It's Michaela Cole. Um, playing one of the Dora Milaje, uh, and just I just feel like making every scene of hers just delightful. Um, and it's it was very strange because I can tell like what they were trying. Like it seems like they're trying to set up something else, and it's not really working with like what's happening in the moment. But it like almost doesn't matter because of just how like charismatic Michaela Cole is as a performer. And I just loved every scene she was in. Uh, there's that last scene where they're kind of making their what they think is going to be their last stand. And she's just like she's just delighted. Like she's just she's just ready for what's coming. And I just loved I just feel like she brings such a different energy than what we've seen, even in the Dora Milaje. And I just I just love that. I can't wait to see what they're going to do with the character. I don't know if this was the best, you know, maybe use of that character yet. But I just loved her so much. And, uh, you know, just it's part of the texture of this world. That's that's what I'll say. And it's and it's uh, she's just really good. Yeah, they they really gave her table scraps to work with. And she just maximized every opportunity she had on screen. 
Um, it's, it almost feels like that might have been something but, that got rewritten multiple times during the like the production of okay, what exactly what exactly are we going to do with the story? You know, before and after chat. So that that could it could have been a victim of that. You know, if, well, like, it's what it is is it's set up for the Midnight Angels TV show, which is coming in about two years <laughs> to Disney Plus. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, her and her and Guerrero are going to be leading those that that TV show. Also, um, aside from the cast, I have to do this shout out uh, while we're doing the episode. Um, shout out to Ludwig Göransson, whose score for the original Black Panther is still like I will casually listen to that score because it is so fucking amazing. And his work in this movie slaps even harder. I was halfway through the movie. I'm like, how is this music even better than the first movie, which was already like top tier movie scoring. And suddenly he just like doubled the bar. Like this should be a crime. What is going on here? So the music and and, and the sound design around it, how the music is utilized and how the, the, the tone rises and falls according to the situation. Like the electric guitar theme that comes in when Shuri is the Black Panther is just perfect mood center for all those scenes and also shout out to the costume designer ruth carter oscar award winner an unbelievable (laughs) job here there ever was one and uh so i am conscious of time i know bill that i think you have to um skedaddle but that's totally fine and thank you again for doing this really (laughs) saved our bacon (laughs) thank you uh well first off don't don't tease me don't talk about bacon i haven't eaten breakfast yet uh but yeah thank you so much guys for having me and uh, of course you can we've plugged all my stuff already a million times so thank you so much i look forward to coming back in the future so how did you guys feel about the arc of shuri who's very much centered here as as our not just as our new black panther but as our protagonist here um and I, i guess i wanted to hear what you guys think for me it you know, I love Letitia Wright and pretty much everything that I've seen her. Um, I thought this gave her new angles to play. I was surprised about the anger part of it. That was uh, a surprise to me. But I also like how it set up uh, her her arc by really making it so that she was trying to save um, her brother. And at the same time, like you recognize that that process ended up making it so that she really didn't get to say goodbye um, and I feel like that state that kind of haunts the rest of the film and, and I feel like it haunts her character, but she's so good at internalizing a lot of it that it really only explodes towards, you know, towards the end. Um, and I thought that was really well conveyed, uh, by her. And I really liked, um, you know, just pretty much any of her emotional moments. I mean, again, we're talking about just great scenes of grief, like just mourning her mother in that moment was just almost unbearable to watch. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I just I really liked what she was doing here. But what did uh, what did you guys think? Yeah, I mean, my biggest takeaway from the movie, honestly, the thing that I said at, immediately after watching it was like, wow, they really built her into a lead character. They did the job that they needed to do here and made her feel like a coherent lead who could who can anchor this franchise moving forward, which I was surprised by because I just I wasn't sure if that's the route that they were ever going to go down. This movie has so many great actors attached to it. I thought maybe that they were just going to kind of lean into the ensemble nature of a world without T'Challa. And that's not what they did. They really, you know, uh, Angela Bassett's character, Ramondo, gets a lot of time in the first, like, third of the movie and feels almost like the lead of the movie at that point. But it's Shuri's arc gets set up in that very first scene, and it carries us through the entire film. So she really is the lead from start to finish. And I really think that they did a great job expanding 
on what that character was and who she was and what she meant to this world and 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 what her internal life was um in order to make that feel like a journey that we wanted to go on and in order to really build out that character in a way that she could anchor the franchise moving forward and i thought that leticia wright was excellent she gives a really fantastic performance it really asks a lot of her and i think that she's really dynamic and intense and emotional and and charismatic and strong and competent and all of the things that you need her to be and i was really really impressed with the way that they built her out into a true lead uh character where she really wasn't in the first movie she really was just kind of this this scene ceiling supporting uh character who got in the quip and and always was the smartest person in the room and could and that was that was her vibe and taking that character and making her the center of the screen it could have it could have gone wrong and i think that this really really worked i mean especially since you know that wasn't the plan you know the you know she it was planned that she would just be a side character in the first movie because the focus is on chadwick boseman as t'challa and he's supposed to be you know one of the big avengers figures um going forward so i i assume that once Wright's shuri hits so well in the first movie that they planned like okay we're definitely going to build up her character more but it obviously wasn't planned that she would immediately be the main character of the next black panther movie uh, you know that that was an option that was kind of forced on them and given that they did this amazing i agree they did this amazing job of moving her into this role in a way that makes sense like it, it is more of an ensemble film at the beginning <clears throat> And then it shifts more and more towards a, a Shuri-focused narrative by the end. And it sets up, A, you know, this, this story of how she tried to save him and failed. Uh, and that kind of destroys her her faith in, like, it kind of destroys her faith in God and in science as well at the same time. Even though she insists that she's, you know, just a hard-headed scientist afterward, it kind of destroys her faith in both. Because um, both failed her in that moment. Uh, and it sets up the... Um, the clothing, the, the the burning of the clothing garb as a plot device, as a symbol for being able to move on. And that at the beginning, she is not able, or she insists that it's not necessary, it's not important in air quotes. And then at the end of the movie, that that's, like that was the perfect ending for that character, to have that be her final moment. Uh, and like with the beginning of the movie, where uh, they did the Marvel logo, but just with images of Chadwick Boseman in silence, to have that final montage of just her remembering her brother. Uh, and from what I understand, Letitia Wright and Chadwick Boseman, like on a personal level, became very close friends in the making of the first movie. So that's definitely a case where she was channeling her, like Letitia Wright was channeling herself into her performance at that moment. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Um, and again, having it be mostly silent and just letting her and you, the audience, reflect on everything that's happened, it, it was the best possible way to kind of to bring everything together in that moment. Um, and then you have the reveal in, in the mid credit scene after that, uh, that T'Challa had a son with uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character, which I think I'm glad they kept that for the cutscene and didn't have that be the actual, in air quotes, end of the movie. Like, I think it was good to have the movie end on that note. And then you get the little bit of setup after that. So, yeah, I mean, we knew after the first movie that Wright had the talent to turn the character into that sort of lead figure, but they had to make it, you know, work in a narrative level. And I think they did that. And again, like yeah. I say, that was one of the hurdles that they could have easily stumbled on. This could easily have not worked in so many ways and just yeah. fallen flat. And the fact that it doesn't is a fucking miracle. I think it's just so smart that they they leaned into the way that Wright as a performer can really convey fury and rage 
in such a core way. I mean, we saw this in the Steve McQueen film that she did a, a couple years ago, uh, where she plays a civil rights yeah. activist. Um, it, she's just so she has such a emotional fluency with that with that caliber of of performance and. It makes sense, right? Like the, what happened with Chadwick Boseman feels like a just profound injustice in the universe, right? The the fact that this man who seemed, by all accounts, to be a genuinely good and decent person, who was tremendously talented and who was just at the start of the prime of his career, uh, just get taken from from the world and from his family, of course, but from from everyone who who had such a deep emotional connection to him as a performer as well, that it just feels wrong. And so there is going to be rage in response to that sort of death, right? There is, there's mourning and there's sadness, but there's also a profound rage in, against that injustice um, of the universe, right? And I think that it was, it in retrospect, it seems like, of course, you would include that as a, as a central part of this film. But I think in the moment, it must have been very uh, scary, to consider making that be what this movie was going to be about in so many ways. It's, it's a very emotionally vulnerable thing to do, to, to show off that anger and that rage uh, in in response to grief, right? And I think that that is something that they took a chance on, that the audience would be with them, and I certainly felt it throughout the movie, and I think that right is the conduit for that throughout the entire thing. And and it also mirrors some of the arc that that um, that T'Challa goes on in, in Civil War in response to his father's death um, and his quest for vengeance. So there's a nice paralleling of their of their arcs in a way that makes it feel like they're both becoming Black Panther specifically in a way. Like they both had to go on a similar journey to get to that to, to hold that mantle. And there's a nice there's a nice symmetry to that. But but more than that, I think it really is just the emotional response that we are all feeling right at, the, at that incredible sense of injustice that's occurred. Uh, and I really like the inclusion of that in this movie. And and it works well in response to the, the Namor piece because he is so angry at the world for, for, for what he is afraid will happen to his people. And so there is, it, they're, they're able to have an emotional connection in that, as well that I think is important for when they finally end up uh, reconciling uh, the two characters in the climax. So I think it all it all comes together much, much better than I would have expected because certainly the Namor arc uh, was a carry, it was, was a holdover from what the original version of this film where, where T'Challa was the lead and, and it was going to be him and Namor uh, battling it out over this kind of question of uh, like, do we invade the Western world? Do we not, you know? So it's like, there's in, in, in a sense, those feel like two very different types of stories, but the fact that Kugler and his co-writer, Robert Cole, Joe Robert Cole were able to, uh, to make, to connect them on an emotional level, I think is incredibly impressive. And a lot of that is, is on the right performance specifically yeah and it just occurs to me how like both black panther movies are about like characters who go on emotional journeys who start somewhere and end up in a very different place by the end um and that's part of what makes them interesting that's part of what that's part of what we like about them um and you mentioned you know you mentioned t'challa in civil war you know and also in black panther it's about kind of his reckoning with the past and and discarding the things that are not um, you know, that he has decided are, are not worth uh, investing in anymore. Um, and I think it, this is a little bit of a different journey, but it's a similar kind of ethos behind it. 
Um, and it takes it takes a while to get there. A character has to make mistakes in order to get there. And of course, you know, like any like any interesting character does, uh, sure he does, uh, but is able to come to this place. And I think it it also I you know I love how magnanimous her character is like even before any of this i think you even saw that in the original black panther and i feel like that really comes to the fore that always feels like that's another part of her um throughout this even in her moments where she is kind of letting you know her emotions kind of get the best of her um but yeah uh i don't know if we had any closing thoughts we want to just close it there um because we well, i have a question just before we wrap up, not directly related to this film, but, you know, this is the end of phase four of the MCU, right? We have two more phases sure. planned and announced. And I'm curious, just like as a temperature check, how you guys are feeling about the about the state of the MCU moving forward. Obviously, if you want to hear my feelings on that, you could listen to my other podcast on the topic. I won't I won't waste our time reiterating what I've already said, but I am curious what you guys think about it. I mean, I would say, like, for me, I'm just ready, like, I feel like a lot of the major characters that have become a part of this have been so well-serviced that I'm just kind of ready for, I'm ready for something new. Like, I don't, you know, we didn't really get into it, but there are a couple of times in this movie, like, uh, you know, where we're just getting, like, little references to some of the older characters, like, you know, when they burst into the garage, like, oh, she's got an Iron Man suit, which is weird because it doesn't look at anything at all like an Iron Man suit to me, but I don't know. That just felt, like, so forced, and I guess that just felt, like, to me, like a microcosm of, like, okay, I don't need that. Like, I've I've got that. Like, you know, I've really enjoyed these characters. I'm ready to invest in these new characters and what they're going to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I guess that's how I feel about it. I'll, out with the old in with the new. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm here for more, more of the groundbreaking stuff, like having, you know, with, with Namor and with, with Telecon, having an indigenous, um, centered and oriented, uh, part of the MCU, uh, and the characters that come out of that, you know, we've, we've gotten that now with Wakanda, we're, we're getting there with Shang-Chi, and uh, with more, you know, some more Asian-oriented characters. So b- continuing to break new ground is what I would like to see going forward. Um, and expanding the mold of... And, you know, there there's an argument back and forth with, you know, does it really matter or does, is it really worthwhile if, you know, uh, you know it's a mega corporation like Disney is, is trying to... is doing that sort of representation? I think to a very basic degree, it does matter just to 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 have that standard there of you know the the like like the tent pole of modern cinema which is what Disney's very much trying to have the MCU be should be a big tent where everyone gets to see themselves represented on screen so i think continuing to go in that direction is where the MCU should go and i think Wakanda Forever continues in the trends of movies going more in that direction um but i, I still want to see more if that makes sense it does. But so that, and, and I think that that is an important part of this phase, right, was to kind of expand whose stories we got to find. Uh, but in terms of the stories themselves, like, is there anything that really spoke to you? Are you do you feel like you have the same level of enthusiasm as you did uh, around Endgame, you know, in terms of the project of the MCU? I mean, Endgame was so unique because it, it brought together everything from 10 years of really comprehensive long-term film planning i don't know if marvel could ever recreate that experience at least for me and i don't think i want them to like i don't think i want the mcu to try that i don't want i don't want to see another movie in 10 years that 
encompasses everything following Endgame up to that point. Like, I'm not that invested in it anymore. Like, I just want to see new stuff. And for me, Wakanda Forever is that example, is that sort of thing. Like, it, it's breaking the mold. It's telling, you know, it's it's dealing with this very unique conflict between these two peoples who were able to avoid, not just avoid being victims of colonialism, they were able to rise above that. And they're the two most powerful, like, nations or groups on Earth um, at this point in time. And that's a really fascinating uh, storytelling device to, to play around with. So... Like I don't, Justin, I don't, do you feel? Similarly? Yeah, like I don't want to see Endgame. I don't think Endgame can be uh, re, like recreated for me. And I don't want. Yeah, that, you know, I, I didn't mean specifically mm. like your anticipation of Endgame specifically. I just meant like your overall enthusiasm for the project of the MCU as it was in 2019. You know, but Justin, how about you? What do you think? Um, you know, there's a part of me that's just having now at a point where the TV stuff has become, um, you know so proliferated that um there's a part of me that does worry a little bit more about fatigue um i really feel felt like i wasn't feeling that until the television shows which i've had a you know there have been some really good stuff i feel like i've been mixed to maybe a little more on the negative side for a lot of the other ones um and i guess i would just my fear would be and maybe this is part of what dims my excitement a little bit is that and I think we saw it to an extent in this movie also is this sense of always setting things up. And then I, I think about and having rewatched Black Panther again, that film, while it's not completely in a vacuum from the MCU, I do think the parts of what make it really work are that self-contained nature. And I guess I'd like to see more of that going forward, but I don't know if there's always going to be this sense of, okay, what's the next thing? What's this thing? How does that, you know, and is that going to relate to the story that we're experiencing, you know, at that moment? Uh, So is my, so I guess, I guess my excitement is a little bit lower than it was at the time uh, of Endgame where I thought it was really at its height for me. Um, But, you know, I'm, I've been wrong before about the mcu so we'll see what happens famously after iron man 3 justin said never again will i watch an mcu movie i'm done with these and uh and then here we are so <laughs> that is true they there it's it's commendable that you are willing to let them win you back and i respect that but i'm going to become part of the problem and ask you this to kind of close out 2023 what Marvel movie art or project are you looking forward to? We know everything that's coming, so I'm just going to run through it real quick. We have in February, Ant-Man and the Wasp's Quantumania. Uh, in spring, most likely March, on the TV side, it's going to be Secret Invasion, which is going to uh, co-star Olivia Coleman and Amelia Clark, among other people, getting their introduction to the MCU. Uh, in May, we'll have Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, uh, where Will Poulter will be joining the cast, among others. Uh, in Early summer, we'll have Echo, which is going to be a spinoff of the Hawkeye character uh, from last year. Uh, Then in July, we'll have the Marvels, which will be teaming up Monica Rambeau uh, along with uh, Kamala Khan and uh, Carol Danvers. Uh, Then in late summer, we're going to have Loki Season 2, which is going to be adding uh, Raphael uh, Casal to the cast, along with Ki Hugh Kwan, who uh, we all re-fell in love with in Everything Everywhere All at Once. Um, and then in the fall, we have uh, Ironheart, uh, which is 
uh, the spinoff to Wakanda Forever, right, starring Dominic Thorne as Ironheart. And that has a very interesting cast, including Anthony Ramos, who's going to be the primary villain, um, and uh, Alden Ehrenreich, everyone's favorite Han Solo, JK, JK. Uh, and, um, and Sasha Baron Cohen is, is expected to be in it in a, in a role that I will not reveal, but um, might be a little controversial. So out of all of those, uh, what project are you most looking forward to? Just admit it. He's going to be Borat. Borat is an Avenger. That's <laughs> no, it's not Borat, but it is someone that everyone has been waiting a long time to see in uh, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, at least since uh, WandaVision. Uh, and that's all I'll say. OK, so I have to say so. For, so I'm just going to say up front, that is too much Marvel for me. That is <laughs> way too many movies uh, for me to really get that invested in. But. Just because, given the whole hullabaloo that we went through of James Gunn being fired and then unfired because of a bunch of, you know, far-right online shitposting, um, I am looking forward to see what he does with the Guardians franchise. If he's going to, like, kind of bring things to a close and, like, put his fi- put like a final definitive statement, or if he's just going to keep going with this as long as Marvel will let him, and, and the third movie is just going to be the gateway to more adventures. So I, I am very interested to see what he does and if he tries to maybe make the third Guardians movie be a statement of some sort, like, ha, you thought you could get rid of me, fuckers. We'll see. So that that's the one that I'm most personally interested in seeing, whether A, whether it's good or bad, and then and then B, in what ways it's good or bad. So but I'm I'm fairly certain he's gonna make a good movie. So I well he's yet to make a bad movie, so Yeah, and face. both guard the two Guardians are both among my all time favorite Marvel movies. So the the track record is good. How about you, Justin? Um, for me, it's the Marvels uh, and uh, people who have listened to this before and uh, who know me probably think like, oh, you're just saying that because Brie Larson's in it. Well, I can't say that's not a reason, <laughs> but I think beyond that, uh, it's Nia not, not the reason. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, but Nia DaCosta's involvement with that, I think I've spoken before about her. I was a little cooler on um, Candyman, I would say. Uh, maybe wasn't the the great horror movie that I was expecting. Um, but I do still think about her debut feature, Little Woods, and how good she is at fostering interpersonal relationships. Uh, and uh, that's what I'm looking forward to about this movie. I'm looking forward to seeing these characters interact. Uh, very different personalities. Um, but I think just that's what makes it interesting. And uh, I don't know a ton about it, but just the people involved in it makes me really excited. I love all three of those performers. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing Ms. Marvel in, you know, making her big screen debut because I think she deserves it. So, yeah, the Marvels would have definitely been my answer if you hadn't picked it for all the reasons that you said, basically. Uh, but if I have to pick a runner up, I would go with Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, which is a as most anticipated to go i only have to wait a couple months so that's good news for me um because i really i really like Catherine newton as a young performer i'm excited to see her get to make her mcu debut as the grown-up cassie lang and uh you know we're getting more uh jonathan majors as kang and he was so fantastic as kang in loki in the first season of loki that i just can't wait to see what he does uh with this version of the character in this film moving forward so uh, when i watch of the trailers that we watched uh so he is really making the most of his post-pandemic life and i respect that for him i'm very excited to see him just completely continue to own hollywood um and yeah i think this is the next step in that journey so i'm definitely excited for that 
I still remember watching The Last Black Man in San Francisco the first time and being like, I have no idea, like, who is this guy? He's fantastic. And now seeing him, like, blow up, just so, it's very satisfying. I'm still, I'm still not over how perfect that movie is. Like, the entire movie I wanted framed on my wall. That's how good it is. Yeah, good stuff. All right, guys. Well, we've uh, now that we've indulged in all of our speculation and our opinions on all these upcoming projects. Uh, all let's... of which will be correct. <laughs> yes, I'm sure all of it will be met to our satisfaction. Um, but let's talk about where we can find everybody as we close things out here. And uh, Noah, I'll start with you. Where can we find you? All right. Well, Justin mentioned earlier, uh, he and I, in addition to our work here in Cinema Joe's, we have a musical podcast, Podwork Angels, that is ongoing where we go through the discography of the progressive rock band rush as for me you can at the time of recording still follow me on twitter at, at noah france what will tomorrow bring no one knows but that's okay and what was not going anywhere anytime soon are all of my written things on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com good well i'm glad we still have you in some form <laughs> if nothing else in some way yes <laughs> Uh, as for me, you can find me at thecinemaverick.com. That's my website. I'm also on Letterboxd at The Cinemaverick, where you can read uh, all the older movies I've been watching, including catching up with the Scream series for the first time and really having a great time with it. Uh, I waited way too long on that. Anyway, um, Alex, where can we find you? All right, well, in addition to finding me reading your Scream reviews on Letterboxd, uh, <laughs> which I've been really enjoying, because uh, I, I just knew you would have fun with this. I mean, anybody who loves movies is going to love Scream. That's the thing that I didn't know until I've watched them. So I'm very excited by this development. Not sure why it's happening, but I'm happy that it's happening. Uh, but in addition to that, you can follow me. Uh, I've kind of emotionally said farewell to Twitter uh, after the last week. Uh, so, you know, I still have those accounts, but I don't know if I'm going to be using them anymore. Um, at Media Thinkings, at Cinema Joe's, of course, um, we'll at least be posting on there for our <laughs> for to announce our upcoming episodes. So you can definitely check that out. Um, I did post uh, on there last week to let people know uh, what we had coming up for the rest of the year, just in case Twitter went down permanently, as it seemed like it was about to. So uh, you can check that out also at Cinema Joe's. Um, I'm on Mastodon. I don't really know how it works yet, so we're figuring it out together. So check, look up Media Thinkings over there. But for film stuff, definitely at Letterboxd, or going to Letterboxd and, and going on at Media Thinkings over there is the best way to follow me. But you can also follow my podcasts, where on Pop Break TV, I am the host of TV Break, where in December we have our year in review episode where we talk about the biggest uh, stories, best uh, series, and uh, the the streaming service that had the best year um, over there that we've already recorded that episode. It was a lot of fun, and I'm excited for people to get a chance to listen to that in a couple of weeks. Uh, also, Bill vs. the MCU, we talked kind of at length in this episode about my last episode of that. So uh, as a tease for coming up, next month is, our, is kind of our grand finale of our first season. We're going to be doing a number of really fun awards that we're giving out as kind of like a recap of, of the first four phases of the MCU. Uh, I don't the kind of rewarding not just our favorite movies and performers, but also fun things like uh, the Darcy Lewis award for character we most want to see come back after being gone for a long time. So things like that. Nobody's going to have a lot of fun. Secret scrolls. We're going to decide who is the secret scroll in all of the phases of the MCU. Things like that. It's going to be fun. We're also going to give a brief uh, review of the Guardians holiday special, which comes out next week. So um, that Marvel fatigue. Uh, sorry, Justin. It's it, the machine is never going to stop. 
Um, but yeah, and also on that episode, we're going to announce what the future of the podcast holds now that we have watched every Marvel Cinematic Universe property. And uh, we have a lot of fun plans that I'm excited to announce in that episode. So definitely check that out. And that's on the Breakcast podcast feed. In addition, I also am a co-host on Batman by the Numbers, uh, which Dan Cohen hosts once a month. This month, we, uh, in honor of Thanksgiving, we ranked every member of the Bat family across Batman's extended filmography. And you'll never guess which one... (laughs) inspired the most conversation um i'll tell you it was joseph gordon levitt's character from uh the dark knight rises uh is he robin is he not robin should he be included in the list you'll have to listen to find out uh so yeah that was a lot of fun to talk about we had um michael uh michael t ford the third on as our guest uh, this month to talk about that so yeah that's that's all my stuff how about you justin oh well uh i think i shared mine but i forgot to say that uh, you can also find uh, the aforementioned Podwork Angels on the Pop Break uh, podcast feed as part of the Breakcast feed. Yeah, sorry. Yes. <laughs> yeah, Breakcast feed is, uh, we're really doing it up at the end of the year. We also have, um, we have uh, Not Couple Goals, which is our Bad Romance podcast. Uh, that's having a lot of fun. We got the Anniversary Brothers always doing great stuff on the Breakcast feed. Uh, you never know what they're going to be celebrating an anniversary for each month. So definitely subscribe to that. There's a lot of fun from all of us over there. Well, thank you, gentlemen. And uh, thank you to Bill, of course, for joining us. And uh, for the Cinema Joes, this is Justin Mancini signing off.